everybody. I hope you're having a happy and awesome Sunday. So last week I was super burned out. That's why you didn't really see or hear from me. But I'm back now. I feel refreshed and I feel recharged. So let's just go ahead and go. So today I'm going to talk about the book of Joel. If you haven't read it, he's a minor prophet and it's super short. Joel is only about three chapters long. I could sit here if I wanted to and read verse for verse and just break it down, but I won't go through and read every single verse. But, so there's not really, they don't really, the people who put the Bible together, they don't really know when he wrote this and there's nothing to really indicate who was in power at the time. And he also doesn't specify what exactly the sins of the people were that needed repentance. So it's kind of hard to place this book chronologically. But I also think it's kind of cool that there's not really any date because then we can look at throughout history and look at our time now and look at how it applies to what we're going through, whatever country you may be living in and then whatever climate that that country is in. So basically he's talking about foreshadowing the day of devastation. So in the Old Testament, when they say the day of the Lord, it means some event that is planned by God that brings, or planned or used by God that brings divine judgment. So there's not just one day that if I'm understanding that correctly, there's multiple days of the Lord. And I think there's also been multiple days of the Lord throughout history. I'm not I'm not one of those people who's going to say, oh, this this was planned by God or like God brought this because really I don't know. And prophecy is not technically my gift. I've had prophetic dreams before, but I'm not going to sit here and claim to know why something happened or claim to be 100% sure that God planned this and brought this on the people, you know. But anyways, so yeah, it's predicting the day of the Lord. And then the second part is the day of repentance, and then after repentance is restoration on Israel. So in book book one, in chapter one, it's talking about the plague of the locusts. So, and if you remember in Exodus, they also had a bunch of plagues because of the way the Israelites or the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. And that can be seen as a day of judgment or a day of the Lord as well. And one of their plagues was also locusts. And it was, and when I'm talking about these events, they're so bad that they just completely destroy the economy. They stop everything. And the people don't have no choice but to turn to God because they literally cannot do anything. Everything is absolutely devastated and absolutely ruined. So this is what the locust does throughout Throughout the Bible, he used, God uses locusts to judge the people because in this society or in America, well, I think really a lot of places, it's, I know there's some tribes that do it differently, but anyway, it's capitalistic. So we exchange money, paper money, or on a currency online or through a computer. In those days, it was agrarian. So they grew cop, grew, I cannot speak, grew cops. <laughs> they grew crops. And so... When God brought locusts, they completely destroyed their economy because if they don't have any food, if these locusts are eating up all the food, then they can't trade, they can't eat, they can't do anything. 
And so this is how devastating these plagues are that the Lord brings. So in chapter one, I'll just start reading on verse 15. It says, Woe because of the day, for the day of the Lord is near and will come as devastation from the Almighty. Hasn't the food been cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of the Lord? The seeds lie shriveled in their casings. The storehouses are in ruin and the granaries are broken down because the grain has withered away. How the animals groan, the herds of cattle wander in confusion since they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep and goats suffer punishment. I call to you, Lord, for fire has consumed the pastures of the wilderness and flames have devoured all the trees of the orchards. Even the wild animals cry out to you, for the riverbeds are dried up and fire has consumed the pastures of the wilderness. So it's crazy as I was reading it, I was seeing all these parallels of what's going on today and also just a lot of natural disaster type events that have happened that have displaced so many people. And again, I'm not going to say like, oh, the Lord planned this to happen because again, I don't consider myself a prophet. That's not my gift. I'm not one of those people. Or at least it hasn't happened yet. The Lord hasn't told me that he brought this natural disaster because the people need to repent. Like he, he hasn't told me that. So I'm not going to claim that. But it's, I think it's still interesting seeing those parallels and seeing how every day we get just closer and closer to the end, you know? And, and I know there's also a lot of people that are claiming to predict that the end times will be in our generation. But as I read, when I see, like especially the Old Testament when God sends the judges, and he just allows enemies to come and destroy everything. It just sounds so much worse than it does now. Like this pandemic, people are looking at it and saying like, oh, this is the end, like God's about to come back. But if I'm being honest, I don't think we're even close yet because the times that they're describing here is a time where people are so godless that there's gonna be nobody else to come to Christ and like, there's still like a lot of Christians that are following God. So from what I'm seeing in the patterns I'm seeing in the Bible, I'm not seeing it happen anytime soon. But again, like I said, I don't know. Nobody knows the day or the hour. So let's go ahead and transition into Joel chapter two. So I took notes on some of the verses. We'll skip to verse 12 where it says God's call for repentance. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. I'm going to read that verse again. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes. So in that culture, public mourning was very common. Like if somebody died or something really bad happened, the men would tear their clothes, the women would beat their chests. But God is saying, don't just go through the motions. I want you to actually let the conviction sink in your hearts for the nation's sins and actually be sorry. Have a heart for repentance and turn from your sin. So, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. 
Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. So you can offer grain and wine to the Lord your God. So, yeah, as I read, I always get these analogies of Cain and Abel. God is really serious about us not just going through the motions and actually having a heart for him. So we can't just go to church on Sunday and be like, oh, I'm sorry for my sins. I'm sorry. No, we actually have to have a heart that grieves and that feels the weight of sin the way that God does. And like, if there's any area that you're struggling with that particularly, you can pray about that, that God will break your heart in that area. Okay, so let's keep going. Why don't we go to verse 18? No, no, oh, I almost skipped an important part. Oh my goodness. So let's continue at verse 14, actually. No, I just read that. Okay, 15. <laughs> Blow the horn, Zion. Announce a sacred fast. Proclaim an assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the aged. Gather the infants, even babies nursing at the breast. Let the groom leave his bedroom and the bride her honeymoon chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, have pity on your people, Lord, and do not make your inheritance a disgrace, an object of scorn among the nations. Why should it be said among the people, where is God? So I just thought that was really like mind blowing. Like he's saying that the people in the nations, they realize the weight of their sin collectively so great that they dropped everything that they were doing to gather together and have a meeting and go make it right. So when I look at our country or in other countries, I honestly think that is what's needs, that's what needs to happen. There needs to be a collective repentance where people need to just gather together, like drop what they're doing and just, just see the severity of it and just beg and plead for God to restore our nation. Like say, I'm sorry for our sins, like even for our ancestors' sins who have passed away. I'm not the one who did this, but God, I apologize on their behalf and I wanna make it right for my future generations. I think that is what we need. And, and that's what I pray for. Like instead of me having a bad attitude, like, oh, like our country's going to crap. I need, God convicted me about that. I need to have a better attitude and spread positivity around that and maybe maybe write letters to like the Christians in office and people who are in the White House or just anybody who's running any form of office to say maybe we can organize some prayer walk and have a call for repentance but things are only going to be restored if if on a large scale everybody does it like we have to have a mass turning back to the Lord that's what we need okay um I think that is all I want to talk about in chapter two let me see let me make sure I didn't miss anything because I almost did <laughs> uh let's go to verse 18 so this is talking about the Lord's response when he sees the people's repentant hearts. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and spared his people. The Lord answered his people, look, I'm about to send you grain, new wine, and fresh oil. 
you will be satiated with them and I will no longer make you a disgrace among the nations. Like, y'all, doesn't that sound good? We can, we can reverse this, like all the crap that's going on in our world. Like God is powerful. I think we need more faith and we need to just come together and repent. Okay, verse 20 says, I will drive the northern northerner far from you and banish him to a dry and desolate land. His front ranks into the Dead Sea and his rear guard into the Mediterranean. His stench will rise. Yes, his rotten smell will rise. Ew. For he has done astonishing things. So, so another way of judgment that was happening during this time Joel wrote was that other nations would come in they would just be passing through and then they would just plunder. And God allowed stuff like that to happen because they were far from God. So it's unfortunate when God has to take everything away from a nation in order them to open their eyes and remember that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. So, and it's never, it's never pleasant when we get to a point where God has to start taking stuff away and knock us on our behind and wake us up. So that's another way, another example of a day of the Lord or a way he'd bring judgment was to allow other nations to come and take them over and enslave them so that they would lose everything and they'd be completely displaced. Okay. And let's see. Let's go to verse 23. So it says, children of Zion... Rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God. Because he gives you the autumn rain for your vindication, he sends showers for you, both autumn and spring rain as before. So, as before, again, restoring everything. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and fresh oil. So not only will he restore, he's giving them things that they didn't even have before, to the point where... You almost can't even tell how bad it was before. I will repay you for the years of the swarming that the swarming locusts ate, the young locusts, the destroying locusts, and the devouring locusts, my great army that I sent against you. I will have plenty to, or you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. My people will never again be put to shame. You will know that I am present in Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. So, and also, I'm just going to finish chapter two. There's not that much to go. So this next part is God's promise of his spirit. So, after this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity and... We've already been seeing that, like, it says near the end that there's going to be more signs and even greater gifts that people will demonstrate. So he says, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. So this is not just something that is for elite. There is no class like everybody has an opportunity to come to Christ. You don't have to have a special social status in order to show these signs. So any anybody, any nationality, any race, any social class will be showing these miraculous signs and God's gonna give them dreams 
and he's not going to discriminate the way that we tend to do on earth or in a worldly mindset. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon blood. I saw a moon, I saw a red moon last night. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, for there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised among the Saviors the Lord calls. So, this last part sounds like it is talking about like the end of the time, the final judgment where God just comes and shuts everything down. Like the sun, that light is gone. The light of the moon is gone because God is the light. There's going to be no other need for these earthly things. So we see that when the people come, <coughs> excuse me, when the people come together, and make a public outcry, God responds to that. And it seems so simple. And see, I don't want to say that I don't have faith that people will do it, but I believe that when it gets that bad, where people are absolutely hopeless, hopeless, I think that more people will be willing to gather together and repent. But yeah, we're, we're coming to the end, like whatever that means, because time is varied. I think God really has no concept of time. Like we always think, oh, it's coming, it's coming soon. But we really don't know what the heck soon is. Soon could be another 5,000 or a million years, you know? You never know. And since in the Old Testament, when he had these judgments, like especially with the ark and like with the plagues, the people seem so much more rebellious than we are now that it makes me think we have quite a few generations to go still. But... That is just me, like, thinking out loud. Like I said, I don't know. And for me to claim to know would mean that I'm a false teacher. Okay, so watch out for anybody who claims to have a date or to know when the Lord's coming back. Okay, so let's go to chapter 3. This is the last chapter in Joel. I took quite a few notes on this. So this is talking about the judgment on the nations and... I saw a lot of parallels for things that have happened or things that are happening now. So, verse 1 says, Yes, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and take them to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So, I think the Valley of Jehoshaphat is symbolic for, like, that last judgment in Revelation. It I haven't studied Revelation deeply, but it talks about that white throne judgment where like this is this is after the reign of Christ and then after Satan's free reign where God or Christ sits on his white throne and everything, the earth and the universe basically will roll back like a scroll and then everybody gets judged. So I think that's what that's talking about. It says, I will enter into judgment with them there because of my people. So God is going to judge the people because of the way they treated God's people and treated Israel. So because of my people, because of my inheritance, Israel, the nations have scattered the Israelites in foreign countries and divided up the land. They cast lots for my people. They bartered a boy for a prostitute and sold a girl for wine to drink. And I know right now there's a lot of 
I know this is not exactly what this is talking about. It's mainly talking about how they didn't value God's people. But when they were talking about buying and selling people, it made me think of all the sex trafficking that is rampant right now. So, yes, in verse 2 and or 1 through 3, it is foreshadowing the final judgment when God gathers his people, which is symbolic of Israel here, and judges everyone else, which is symbolic of the nations that it talks about here. Okay, and verse 4, it says, Also Tyre, Sidon, and all the territories of Philistia, what are you to me? Are you paying me back or trying to get even with me? I will quickly bring retribution on your head. So this made me think of working apart from God and how meaningless it is. And also verse 5 and 6 says, For you took my silver and gold and carried my finest treasures to your temples. Again, talking about how other nations would come in and plunder Israel. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks to remove them far from their own territory. So, like I said before, they didn't value God's people, just like today how the world doesn't value the church and doesn't value God's word. I think it's that same parallel. And, and I'm also noticing that here in America, and I don't live in other countries, that's why I keep saying America, because I try not to speak on things I don't know. So, but I know for here, we're getting further and further removed from God and there are people who are trying to run our country without God's influence. And I'm not talking about political, like this is not a Democrat or Republican thing. Like, just so you know, I will never do that here. This is not what this channel is for. But I'm talking about no matter what you claim, you claim to be a Christian, because there's people who run in the country who claim to be a Christian, but are running it apart from God. So. Saying that you know God means nothing. It's your heart and your actions. But there are people trying to run this thing without God's influence. And it was never meant to be run that way. And it's until we stop doing that, if we ever do, we're going to keep getting into more and more crap. You know what I mean? Okay. And let's go ahead and go to verse 9 through 12. It says, this is going to cut off. Oh, please don't. Okay, I still have time. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for holy war. Rouse your warriors. Let all the men of war advance and attack. Beat your plows into swords and your pruning knives into spears. Let even the weaklings say, I am a warrior. <laughs> Sorry, I just picture that. Come quickly, all you surrounding nations. Gather yourself. Bring down your warriors there, Lord. Let the nations be roused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat for where I will sit down to judge all the surrounding nations. So 9 through 10, it actually is directed at the Gentile nations and telling them to get ready because their time of reckoning is coming for terrorizing God's people and plundering through their land. And that can also be applied now for people who mistreat God's children or yeah, just don't treat them right. And I also, I also applied this to a spiritual war. This is not what this particular verse means, but I think there's also a parallel to a spiritual war. A rising of God's people. And I just want to point out that this is not to be, when I say God's people, 
it is not to be confused with a certain political party who are often grouped with Christians, like putting the Bible and also like putting those views together. But when I say rising of God's people, I mean people who follow the Bible, live it out, let it transform their heart, do not add or take away anything from it. So that includes not adding the values of the land or the values of your country that don't go with the Bible. So people who let the Holy Spirit speak to them. So in verse 10, when it says, beat your plowshares into a sword, it made me think of the sword of truth and the Holy Spirit led ministry to save the lost and to save as many people before time runs out. So God also gave me that imagery as well. Okay. Um, I think, yeah, I'm almost done here. So then verse 14, it says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. So that, that really sounds like that white throne judgment. Um, and that can, that can also represent how many people will be left behind and won't listen to God. So for those who are in Christ, when we get judged, we don't get judged on our sin because we, we accepted the gift of Christ's grace. We get judged based on the good things we do in our rewards, but everybody else who didn't accept it will get judged based on the bad, the wrong they did. And y'all, ugh, you do not want to be in that position. Like, if you reject Christ and then because of that, you don't have your sins forgiven and then you have to sit on that day of judgment in that huge courtroom, well, I won't say, I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's going to be crazy. Like, that's just really scary for you if you didn't accept Christ and you have to be punished based on what you did. So like, if you don't accept Christ, your eternity is already chosen, but that judgment is to determine the degree of your punishment. And so I think that's what can be applied to that multitude of how many will be left and won't listen to God's soldiers and don't choose God. Excuse me, y'all, my phone keeps cutting off, so I switch devices, but anyways, <laughs> anyways, so I was talking about verse 15, 15 through 16, so for us, like, we're capitalistic, we, we do stocks and bonds, we trade stocks and basically try to build wealth, but like for us, I could see an event like a mass power outage or something that basically shuts down our grid and makes it so that we cannot access those computers and that money. Like I can see that being a really devastating event that causes like a societal collapse. So yeah, back in the day, locusts did the same type of damage that that would do because they starved, like they couldn't buy and trade, they couldn't grow their crops. So I think in this generation, it'd be something that would make us lose access to that money and like everything we rely on, we can't get to. But however, we saw in chapter two that God not only stopped those plagues, he restored everything better than what it was when they showed collective repentance. All right, 
and verse 17 says then you will know that i am the lord your god who dwells in zion my holy mountain jerusalem will be holy and foreigners will never overrun it again so i think sometimes like and i know in my culture specifically we kind of get this cookie cutter version of christ like and of course like god loves you but like we leave out the part where god's standard is perfection so unless we accept that gift of christ because god is just there has to be a penalty for sin and unless we accept that then we're screwed because we can't reach that standard of perfection we need that grace and god is really not playing when it comes to sin like he cannot stand it he cannot be in the sight of it so yeah he's a he's a jealous god so he's basically saying now you're gonna know that i'm the lord because i had to once again like as if he didn't do the same thing over and over again throughout history like once again i had to knock you on your behind because you wouldn't listen i sent prophets you told them to shut up and go on somewhere and you just kept ignoring all these warnings so he had to show himself in a mighty way again so ideally we won't have to do that we'll just like repent but we can't control people so all we can do is like just pray pray that god will mend the heart of our nation because really we don't have the power to change people's heart and that's where christians get messed up sometimes you you kind of overstep god you try to argue with people and you think you have the power to change people but you don't you you do not have the power to mold hearts like and i don't think god he intentionally did not give us the ability to do that because then we'd be able to take credit for salvation for saving souls we are not to take credit for that and sometimes i've even heard churches kind of get which is like i'm and i'm not going to judge their heart on this when you hear big churches like real focus on the numbers all these people got baptized a million blah 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 people like we we led to christ we saved their souls but we just have to be careful and remember that we don't have the ability to change hearts and i'm not saying that these churches that tell their numbers think they do like it's a great thing like reviewing how many people got baptized but we want to we want people to have practical steps and be able to have practical ways that they can follow Christ and not just play a numbers game like, hey, they got baptized, great. It's like, okay, what are they going to do now? What are they going to do with their addiction? What are they going to, how are they going to stop talking to people crazy? Like, blah, 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 whatever. But anyways, I'm getting a little bit off. Let me go on to... Let me go on to the end here. So the last, the very last verse in chapter three, verse 21 says, I will pardon their blood guilt, which I have not pardoned for the Lord dwells in Zion. So notice the last part where it says the Lord dwells in Zion. So without God and without being in the presence of God, the society is doomed. Like we can do what we can and follow God, but like, at the end of the day, if people who are running the society are operating apart from God, or even worse, using the name of God, or 
touting themselves as a Christian, but really not biblically following God, ooh, he hates that. Then that nation and that society is going to be doomed because the country cannot forget the Lord. And I just really pray that we remember that. Like, I pray that our country will collectively repent so that, and even like the damage of this virus like the it's messing up our economy and then the numbers are getting worse again like just prayer that that god will take it away you know yeah and it's unfortunate that he has to do things like this to wake us up because we're we're very forgetful clearly like god has done this multiple times in the past but look at us still he gotta come in knock us on our behinds and get us again but let me try to end on an encouraging note because i feel like i mean joel was kind of talking about the judgment of the nations it was kind of dark so let me try to end y'all on something that's not so discouraging um so i think change really happens with us individually like I can't, I can't control what our leaders do. I can't control what anybody else does. I can just make sure that I'm living for Christ and I do the right thing so that people who are influenced by me and people who are in my circle will come to Christ so that we can spend eternity together because this world, y'all, this will be gone before you know it. So do not get too attached to things of this world. But I think when you focus too much on judgment, you forget about like the final promise and like the victory that Christ has and just how much wealth you will inherit in the kingdom of God. Like when when it's time to go to that place, you gonna forget about everything that happened here. <laughs> Cause I'm sure earth looks so dingy compared to heaven. So we can just continue to love others, continue to live for Christ and just wait for that day. All right, you guys, have a very blessed week, and I'll see you next week. Bye.